Are you tired of the same mundane routine every time you take to the skies? Do you want your air travel to be more of an experience than a boring old trip? Kahuna Airlines, we're dedicated to providing flights that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Other airlines are overly concerned with the trivial aspects of flying, like comfort and safety. Well, here at Kahuna Airlines, we're all about good vibes and groovy times. Stop flying with airplanes with the most basic of accommodations. Now hop aboard our totally far out aircraft. Who needs seats and safety belts when you can travel at hundreds of miles per hour, surrounded by waterfall, beautiful foliage, music from the most advanced of synthesizers? Those corporate clowns and their lame planes just take you from point A to point B with virtually no entertainment in between. Why spend hours on a cross-Pacific flight reading a book or dwelling on the insignificance of your life when you can enjoy a drink from our vodka reservoir and enjoy having songs about island life sung at you for hours on it. You could even be among our luckiest passengers and experience the thrill of a mid-air flight Transference. Kahuna Airlines is not responsible for lost luggage or passengers in any instance of abduction or removal from the plane by third parties. It is not the fault or responsibility of Kahuna Airlines or its subsidiaries. Kahuna Airlines cannot fully confirm the on-time arrival or safety of any of our flights. Kahuna Airlines. A groovy flight. Guaranteed. Groovy guarantee, not a guarantee. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. We are without Kate this week, um, as last week we were without Luke. This week we're without Kate, and next week we will be without me. Uh, so a little bit of a different uh, vibe, maybe. Hopefully not. I don't think so. Last week was good. So um, we'll keep on doing what we can with who we have and... and um, make the most of it but today we're discussing chapters five and six of vineland uh will if you would be so kind as to read us a summary of those chapters oh i, I was supposed to write one did you i we i the email <sighs> all right found it never mind <laughs> perfect chapter five on her way out of town zoid had passed along a curious business card to prairie one that, apparently, he'd received after a long stretch of passive suicidality manifested due to Frenesi's abandonment via a few months' employment by Kahuna Airlines, a budget Hawaiian offering. His role was a unique one, the lounge piano player. He'd been impressed to join their ranks following a stay on the islands when he and Sasha, Frenesi's mother, had sorted out their sort of shared custody. She was no fan of his, the old-school anarchist seeing him as little more than an overbaked sperm donor. Furthermore, they discuss in hushed tones the man Frenesi had left her family for, Brock Vond. He said to be exactly the super-fascist they'd both spent their lives fighting, and 
such a disappointment on Sasha's mind leads her to even suspect Zoid has turned. From then on, Zoid assumed his mopey condition and applied for the position variously described as a gig of death and spooky. As it turns out, as the little guy in the sector, Kahuna was unable to justify the protections fee to ensure against the periodic alien experimentation upon various tr passengers, each of whom were assured to be back home safe and soon safe and sound soon. In that setting, the role of a lounge singer on a trans-Pacific flight becomes clear. As thanks to strange Mr. Takeshi Fumimoto, after accompanying the synthesizer with a G-tuned uke, passes him the card and promises he'll remember it when he needs it. Moving on to chapter 6, finally we meet Frenesi. She's living in the Sun Belt with a low-level functionary of Flash Fletcher. How they'd met is as yet obscured, but it happened at Fawn's re-education camp, apparently where she'd gone after things ended between them. They were both in the difficult position of former revolutionaries, cursed to lives of surveilled and certified mediocrity. Neither their old partners in crime nor the state at whose feet they laid prostrate would dare believe their sincerity at this point. They do have a son, though, at least. Justin, who seems as normal as one could hope. The rug is pulled for them when the stipend checks they rely upon stop clearing one day, alerted by Flash's call from work, notifying her of the sudden deletion of various people's files. She spends hours looking for a place that will cash the check, but fails to do so, being grimly reminded of the omnipotent computers which tie together the banks and the government's edicts. They do not sleep. Meanwhile, we are treated to a Flash summary of Sasha's life, growing up in a union organizer's home, tormented by her own weak point for a man in uniform, which she's now sure she's passed along to her daughter. Regardless, she had internalized the golden rule of the day, loose lips sink ships, and the ship she cared about was a people's party. Alas, the man she eventually would marry turned out to be a bit of an apolitical, though he'd been happy for decades to come to support her passions. She met him during her, during her years as a nightclub singer, dreaming of being something of a Billie Holiday. This all comes together with Frenesi realizing some of the truths her mother had tried to impart on her all those childhood years ago, those she'd shrugged off before adopting as costume for a few short years. Either the eyes of God, the federal government, or a bank computer, all of us simply are living or dead, and her family has just been marked zero. All right, thank you for that. Um, well, let's start with our, our general thoughts on these chapters. How did you guys feel about these two particular chapters yeah i um i probably prefer chapter five to chapter six um personally um chapter five is some of the more memorable uh parts of this book with the the airliner and the it being like a, a big club instead of kind of the yeah. typical row of seats um that imagery stuck with me after i first read the book years ago um and uh, we do get, you know, I these, these chapters are really interesting. They are kind of a transition point uh, where we switch um, POVs from uh, Zoe to Frenessi. Um, who I think you could argue that Frenessi is the actual main character of this book. I think she's kind of the one that's at the center of the plot. Um, she's the one whose actions kind of drive everything um, and are the reason why all this stuff is happening. Um, yeah, I really like these these chapters, though. Um, 
even just all the discussion of the computer and you know the description of frenesi having to cast the check and everything and all of that and all the all the stuff about i really enjoy all the stuff about um the her her parents and um it's there's some really cool parts there where like the part about um her mom thinking her dad uh, was such a great listener and such a, a cool and, and deep guy. And according to him, he was just trying to get laid basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I really like that part. And um, the part at the end with like the, the end of chapter six, like the description of the gates and the different gates to the military base. Um, I really, like, I really love that part that the little, that last like page and a half. Um, I kind of struggle to define why. I mean, it's just I find it so evocative and so like fun to picture. Um, I've actually, whenever I was writing or rewriting my first novel, uh, I went back and picked up that chapter that the end of that the end of chapter six and kind of directly riffed on a lot of the same stuff um, in one section of that novel, just because I really I don't I don't know why I find it so evocative. Um, but it's it's a really compact um like view of like a really cool i just find it really cool and like really i'm struggling to kind of put it into words but it's just it's very evocative and um fun to picture um but yeah i mean then chapter chapter 5 we get you know the two the two songs in that chapter are kind of nice in terms of they're they're kind of low stakes and chapter 5 is just kind of generally a bit um it's one of the funnier chapters and it's just, it's more low stakes. It's kind of more of a, a hangout chapter where we're just kind of hanging out in Hawaii. And, you know, it is kind of nice that we do get, although we don't get the end of, or the beginning of how we don't, I don't think we ever get the beginning of how Zoid and Frenessi really met. I could be wrong. Uh, but it is, you know, the breakup scene is really well done. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean it does. You know, there are some there are some movies about Hawaii that I really enjoy. Um, it does seem to be kind of a something I didn't think about until reading this book is kind of Hollywood's. Um, it is kind of a Hollywood trope to set movies in Hawaii. Um, yeah, I, mean, I I think there's a lot to enjoy in these chapters. This, this is these chapters are kind of where the book starts really gets gets going, um, and starts kind of really delving into uh the history of, of everyone and uh you know the the focus kind of slides backwards in a way that as that in oncoming chapters um it also kind of does that where we kind of go and go between the present and the past we kind of slip between the two um yeah yeah i i absolutely agree with you um i i do think these I, I so I'm actually kind of on the other side in, in in that I kind of I think I like chapter six more than five. I do like five, but I do feel like six has some of the strongest prose in the book, um, at least up to this point for sure. Um, but it definitely is a sort of zoom out um, and and more of a, a wider scope on on these characters and and you're really starting to finally dive into uh, the story a little bit more. Uh, in that sense, and and I do, th there is a lot to unpack in these chapters. Um, there is, um, I think, especially, like you said, the end of chapter six 
is very it, it's very cinematic in the same way that in at lot 49 there were certain scenes and certain sections that felt very cinematic like um um Oedipus driving by herself and the the description of the city as a circuit board and that kind of thing i think that's kind of uh similar to certain passages in here especially at that that point and i i do think you're right in describing Frenessi as as possibly being um, if not, if she's not the main character, she's certainly a sort of central mass around which everything else in the story orbits. Um, so she may not necessarily get the, the most screen time, so to speak, but I, I think that she's essentially at the center of this story. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to kind of dive in and, and pick apart these chapters. Uh, Will, what did you, what did you think of these two? I'm I'm kind of split if we're going. I'm kind of of a split mind when it comes to which of the chapters I prefer. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I do love both of them for very different reasons, as you both pointed out. I mean, the chapter five is just and it's it is it's funny that you phrased it as lower stakes because it absolutely is. At the same time, we were talking about aliens just suddenly <laughs> showing up and there being like a global protection scheme to keep them away from the major airlines. Like that that is again, it is lower stakes for the characters, but it's absolutely hilarious um, because it just it does just come out of nowhere and it doesn't connect to anything else really except for themes. And I, I just think that that. That is such a fun inclusion, especially the way that it that the the issues are solved in that in that chapter. Whether it's uh, Zoid's pent up emotions, or it's the actual alien abductions, the, the solutions to all the problems in that chapter are hilarious. Uh, and then the chapter six, it is it is the beginning of the really deep kind of just like stringing along character introductions into each other that this book is full of that I just love. I love the way that it's done. It's not a terribly interesting subject matter because most of it is just like, here are these relatively normal people's lives. Because sure, Mm -hmm. Sasha's life was crazy compared to most Americans. But for a pension novel, like, great, she grew up in an anarchist family, sang in some nightclubs married a guy that she thought she understood better than she really did like that that's very boring compared to most of his characters and fletcher even more so but the way it's talked about is just stunning so yeah i'm i like both of them quite a bit and i i do agree i do think that if we're gonna talk about who's the protagonist it it probably it is either in my mind prairie or uh or or frenesi and Mm -hmm. You know, it's split because if you're going to say one of them is the hero, it really has to be Prairie. But Frenesi is the center of the story in every way. So on that note, um, you know, as we talked about, we we get a lot more uh, nuance to these to these characters. Um, and, and and I know we're only at this point about not quite a third of the way through just yet. But um, if if we were to compare this to his other works as far as um getting character development this much character development this early on um i i it's definitely an advancement from the books that came before this i don't think um gravity's rainbow or lot 49 or v had as much 
um, character development at, at that point in the story that, you know, that a third of the way, almost a third, maybe a fourth of the way through the story at that point. Um, but do you feel like it's, it's, I mean, I, I think both of you have already kind of said that it, it is, but I mean, is it at this point, do you feel like you're, you have a, a pretty good idea of who these characters are, uh, even though you've already read this, you know, the story and you know where things go. Do you think that he's done a good job up to this point, really letting us get to know these characters uh, and their, their relations to each other? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that, uh, yes, with the exception of Frenesi. And I feel like that's quite intentional at this yes. point. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I could, I could have used more, more in the earlier chapters about, um, Zoid and Frenesi. Um, I know we get the the wedding scene in um, three and four, and the the part that y'all went over and that sticks out, I think, to me and to probably a lot of people about um, Zoid and Frenesi's views on on love and whether or not can save anyone. I I think that's pretty telling. But that being said, I I could. In the earlier chapters before this, I could have used more about their relationship and, and stuff. Um, so we mostly get stuff from Zoid's perspective. And Zoid just doesn't end up being a super important character to pretty much from chapter six onwards. Um, I could yeah. be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure, you know, we kind of we move away from Zoid and we kind of stay away from Zoid uh, for the rest of the book. Um and I, I don't necessarily have a super strong opinion on whether or not that's a good thing or not, because I like Zoid. Um, but he's not, he doesn't end up being a, a super important character. And and we do, you know, he's the kind of the POV character for the first five chapters, basically. Um, which is an interesting authorial decision by Pynchon. Um, It's something that it kind of reminds me of the structure of Against the Day. Although Against the Day is a lot more kaleidoscopic and all-inclusive and there's a lot more characters um you know against today like the the pov character is constantly changing uh by the end of against the day like we get a a straw like a really long uh section of the book that's that's a minor character from like page like 200 you know dominates the last i think 150 pages of against the day mm. um and so like that you know it, it does seem to be something that pension was kind of playing with a lot more in his later time period i mean he does that in gravity's rainbow some uh but gravity's rainbow is so hard to pin down and like you know it's it's so hard to kind of like i i find that people focus too much on slothrop in with gravity's rainbow i don't think that was necessarily pension's intention with that book um it doesn't start with slothrop and stuff um yeah i mean it it is really you know Gravity Rainbow and onwards, he does seem to be a lot of the time, except for maybe, I mean, Inherent Vice and Bleeding Edge, I think, are pretty focused on on their POV characters. Um, yeah, yeah. But in general, um, Pynchon kind of seems to be, he loves to kind of mess with the reader in that way of of kind of throwing curveballs at, at the reader in terms of who is being focused on. Yeah, I, I find... Um... I find it interesting how you you say that Zoid is uh, less important because he absolutely takes a back seat. He he is not driving any plot beyond chapter five. But I do think that his his presence is is felt. I think that there's a reason that so much time is spent with him with his perspective. I do think that throughout the rest of the book, it is important to keep his 
his perspective in mind and as a comparison and contrast to everything else we're going to see. That's definitely fair. He's he's like Isaiah two four, just kind of in the in the shadows for the rest of the story, <laughs> but he's there. Um, I do think it's you know I I on on the note of Zoe because this is I think probably the last time that we'll really spend a good chunk of time talking about him. You know, especially because as you mentioned, as you both mentioned, you no, know, he he kind of takes a back seat from here forward. Um, I I do really like the way. Even though I, I do, I see where Luke is coming from, and I do agree that it would have been nice to have a little more uh, examination of of his and Fernessi's relationship earlier on. Um, but I do think that what we get um, really provides a lot of important context going forward, um, and especially I, I really like the the scene where they are on adjacent balconies and and kind of talking to each other and and Sasha's experiencing all of this and I, I really like there's a specific line in here on page 58 for me um where it's it just says he looked old enough to have been uh, been through it before but who knew maybe this was his maiden voyage into the green seas of jealousy i really that green seas of jealousy i really like i just the, the color imagery we've talked about with in mason dixon how um how excellent he is Pinchon is at, at using color to uh to really paint his prose for lack of a better term there. And I think that that little sentence just does such a, a great job of kind of letting us know what Zoid is going through. I can't help but feel bad for the guy. Um, he is kind of a sad sack and it, it sucks to see him go through everything, but you know, it's, I, I really do enjoy the way that, that we, these brief glimpses we get of their relationship, especially coming off the last chapter and seeing their wedding and everything. And then this is the kind of disintegration of all of that. It's brief, but I think it's very effective. Yeah. And I, I, I hear what you're saying about wanting to understand more about Zoid and Frenesi's relationships, both of you. Uh, but I do think that there's a certain way in which the way we're introduced to the family, while I'm not sure that this is any sort of pretense that Pinchon intended or that it's one that really makes sense as like a, a solid frame to read the book through. I do see these first five chapters, basically, maybe first four, as essentially kind of summarizing what Prairie knows about her family. You know, we, we see this very two-dimensional view of Zoid that is reinforced most strongly by his conversations with his daughter, when in every other situation he is uh, he is contradicting what people assume about him. Mm -hmm. But with Prairie, he, he's happy to let the illusion lie, uh, whether it's truly an illusion or not. You know, he clearly doesn't think it's who he is. He doesn't think of himself as just a sour old pothead. I, I, and I, I think that with that kind of reading, again, not, not a strong paradigm, but in that way, I view it as kind of we're, we are introduced to the way that people see them. But this is these chapters, we begin to see how they see themselves and the way they see each other. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing I wanted to add just real quick, this is an aside. Um, but since I wasn't here last week, I did. I was planning on bringing up um, last week, if I had been there, the fact that uh, Zoid and Frenesi's wedding, it does seem to me. Maybe just like I've seen a picture of uh, Richard Farina and Mimi Baez's wedding 
which you know pictures from that time period kind of have that sepia tone sepia tone yeah, to them yeah. that kind of lends it makes everything seem like it was like all the pictures are taken like a golden sunlight um but i have seen a picture from their wedding and it did this is obviously not you know this is an aside but it, i i do wonder how much of that wedding scene is supposed to be reminiscent of, of richard farinia and mimi Baez's wedding hmm. anyway yeah, yeah, even if it wasn't like written to be a clone of it i mean it might have been the inspiration yeah absolutely yeah. It's one of like Pynchon's few public appearances that are kind of sure. known. Yeah. Uh, well, moving forward, um, in kind of going back to the mention of of the the humor in this in this chapter, um, I do like that Hawaii is kind of described as a destination for broken-hearted California men, um, which kind of is the antithesis of what I think Hollywood and so many other stories kind of presented as. And it's funny, and that, that's something that comes back up in, in Inherent Vice as well. Um, and then we also have the the suicide fantasy package that Zoid is offered um, by the desk clerk, which I thought was um, pretty funny um, in its in its kind of dark way. Yeah, I definitely I do really like that, um, and I I do think that there is kind of I have no idea if this is true. I've never been to Hawaii, and I've spent a minimal amount of time in California. Um. But I think the pitch and look he gets into this that it is kind of a real a real thing. Um or somewhere I've seen that that's actually a real thing that people will go to Hawaii to at least attempt suicide, which is odd to me. Um that old thing did remind me of uh and forgive me, please, but uh forgetting Sarah Marshall. I thought which, the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Don't feel which, bad about it. In my defense, that movie did come out when I was in high school and um you know i was i was the right age to really love that movie um but yeah i, I don't i don't necessarily want to belabor the point of forgetting sarah marshall <laughs> being at all similar to pension but but yeah no i, I yeah. think that's true and i cody you, you point out the i think what you might call the baseline hollywood trope of hawaii being this like beautiful perfect place where nothing bad happens mm -hmm. and there there is this kind of counter trope that i, I think Luke was trying to get it earlier with, with like some of the Elvis Presley movies and forgetting Sarah Marshall and various others throughout the decades that, that really are just absurd pre pretenses to like make a vacation for the actors. Mm -hmm. That's and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find that, that all of that in conjunction with the fact that Zoid probably is suicidal. I mean, he joins, he gets he gets a job that is described as a death trap. Essentially, I do yeah. think he is sincere about it. I don't think it is just melodrama. I, well, it kind of touches on that. He talks about how he was like he was angry enough or almost angry enough, but couldn't go through. I think it's he's at that point where you know it's it's a lingering thought for him, and and he just doesn't know what to do, and he's still kind of just wandering, trying to find meaning, which is why he picks up such a shit job. Um. Which on that note, that that segues us perfectly into that whole bit. I I do, and and Luke talked about it earlier. I absolutely love the the kind of horrific vibe of that plane with the uh, the open top and the everything just designed to look like a a bad hula party. Um, it's grotesque in 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 its presentation, but it's it's so accurate to something that would probably existed in some kind of disturbing cocaine fever dream at the time 
Yeah, it wouldn't. It's the type of thing that it really wouldn't surprise me if, like, um, I don't, I don't, I, I do, I do kind of wonder where he did get the inspiration for all the interior decoration in the, in the plane, um, uh, like the mini waterfall and stuff. It's the kind yeah. of thing that, like, I could see like a movie villain having that as like his, <laughs> you know, like his like home base, or, like his like James Bond villain thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I suspect it might be. Pinchin might have come up with it himself, um, but I do kind of wonder if there is a pop culture thing he's referencing. I couldn't think of anything pop culture wise, but I do get. Yeah, I mean that was around the time the seventies, sixties, and seventies when that uh, that decor was certainly prevalent. I think in a lot of areas, and I think airports would probably have definitely taken advantage of you know decorating like that. And so it's probably just playing up that whole. Um imagery for it i do want to just read this this paragraph where it talks about zoid's job at the at the uh on the flights on westbound flights zoid's job at the keyboard like that of the hula dancers flame eaters cocktail waitresses and bartenders was to keep passengers from thinking about what lay in store for them on the honolulu end the luggage misconnected and untraceable the absent bus links to hotels which had already lost everybody's reservations the failure of jack lord to show up as promised in the brochure for photo opportunities kahuna's all but unpredict all but unpredictable scheduling produced arrival times lost in mid-watch hours when airport security grew eager to play roles with disagreeable subtexts harassing the single women sweating the dopers abusing the elderly and foreign staring needling trying to get something going where were the traditional local cuties with the flower lays one for each deplaning neck for you, the armed uniformed gents all broke out in the high barks of laughter. At this hour, what for? It's that idea of Zoid, of a knowingly uh, incompetent airport airline that has to hire someone on to keep people distracted from how bad they are at actually doing what they're doing. I mean, that sounds like airlines today. Although yeah. They mostly hire like actors to do the, the in-flight safety announcements. Which I'm yeah. not sure is as as effective as a you know what was it like an orchestral ukulele synthesizer? Yeah, with like eight eight different ukuleles. I think was it a baby grand think, synthesizer is how it was described. Beautiful. I do think to go back a little bit. I do think it's interesting that Zoid, uh, right after getting broken up with, perhaps for the final time, immediately goes and tries to find a gig to play. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting kind of, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, I've, I have friends that are musicians, you know, Kate and Cody are musicians, but I've never really, I've heard of people being, you know, depressed or anxious or different things and wanting to, wanting to play their instrument in private. I've just never heard of somebody going out and wanting to play a gig basically whenever they're sad and depressed. Um, that actually is something I can speak to. Um, yeah, I've I've been in that situation before, um, and yeah, I had times where in in the punk band I was in, um, I would have I had a couple of shows where it was just like I had had a shitty day or a shitty night before, and getting out and and playing like really absolutely takes your mind off because you're forced to focus on the performance and. I think it also helps when you have people that you're playing music with that you're friends with. And I was, uh, and still am very close to the guys in that band. So it was a, a really good way of, of, yeah, of kind of forgetting about it and, and putting it aside at least for a little while. Um, so I, yeah, I get where he's coming from with that. Absolutely. 
not that I'm going to go run off and, and play lounge music on a god awful air flight, but, but um, you know, whatever, whatever helps. I mean, we know Zoid wanted to do his his lounge CD or lounge album to win back for Nessie, so that's certainly where his his mind goes. I think in these kind of situations, it's his default. Yeah, I, I wonder about the whether there's any specific commentary that we were supposed to take about the airline. Because, you know, this is the the time that this was being written was the, the era of the Concorde. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, sure, the Concorde was a technological upgrade in terms of air flight. But otherwise, outside of that, pretty much every innovation in the sector had just been cost-cutting measures. You yeah. Know, going from the, the old school days of you dress up, wear a suit, and get served fresh steak and vegetable, like roasted veggies... When flying was supposed to be yeah. an experience, yeah. exactly, yeah. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't square that circle, but there's, it, it's interesting. Keeping with the the music uh, portion of the conversation, I, there is a ton of musical references in not just in this book, but in these two chapters, there are all kinds of these little musical Easter eggs that I I found, and and the musician in me was pleasantly. Uh, engaged with those and constantly trying to find um, what he was getting at with them. Um, we mentioned the ukuleles, which is a recurring instrument. I, I think now we've had it. It's I know it's in Against the Day pretty out front. It was in Mason and Dixon, I think, right? They mentioned it. Um, I think you're correct. I say. But it was anachronistically mentioned. It hadn't really technically been invented at the time it was mentioned. Yeah, it was mentioned. a tiny guitar or something. Yeah, a tiny guitar. Thank you. Um, and it, it's just that, that instrument that comes up so often in his books and I love it. It's, it's a bizarre choice, but it's a, a kind of underappreciated instrument. I think it's always seen as a goof, but it, if it's played well, it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. I've been looking into the history of stringed instruments the last few weeks and I, I, the ukulele is a very interesting history. I recommend everybody look into it, but Mm -hmm. very long story short is that Portuguese the Portuguese guitar is technically different from the guitar that we all think of and the Portuguese sailors who made landfall in Hawaii brought them along and the Hawaiians basically just started making their own versions and you know they had fewer animal guts so they made it with four strings and made it smaller because their trees are smaller and you know Pynchon loves it when uh, native and oppressed people's adopt and not not adopt uh, appropriate the 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 ruling classes art he really does love that mm. i mean that's that I, I imagine that's part of his infatuation with jazz oh for sure yeah i don't i don't get the sense it's the same as his love for the kazoo which i think is <laughs> almost entirely novelty <laughs> yeah that has to be um i do also love the description of the the as we already mentioned, the uh, Baby Grand Synthesizer, um, which uh, contains three orchestral sections of eight ukes each. Um, and as it's described in here, the critter like to drift off pitch on him, or worse, into that shrillness that sours the stomach, curtails seduction, poisons the careful ambience. Nothing he could find in the dash one under the seat ever corrected uh, what he more and more took to be conscious decisions by the machine. Um, the The idea of a... Uh, I, I guess a somewhat sentient instrument that um, constantly 
tries to, uh, I guess, bedevil its its user and its performer is is hilarious. As someone who has played many instruments and struggled with, especially the cheaper ones, um, that that reads very true. They they have this weird tendency to fight against you when you're trying to play them. Yeah, and I I do wonder if that that particular paragraph isn't you know very much kind of him Pynchon going back to his old V days of talking about how humans anthropomorphize these objects mm-hmm. because yeah it you know it's the scene with aliens it could be a sentient piano why not yeah but it it also is fundamentally it's a synthesizer it's one of the simplest electronic pieces of equipment you could create in terms of like what could go wrong bug wise and yet they've cheaped out so badly that it won't even play the same key every time you press it. Yeah. And, and so all Zoid can do is sit around imagining what the machinations of this busted synthesizer are. And finding no help in the user manual, which is always yeah. the case. There's absolutely no answers in there. Absolutely, yeah. It is It is interesting that the the synthesizer seems to have life of its own and that it's electronic given chapter sixes yeah um, yeah on and off again meditation on computers and uh how mysterious they at least probably seemed in the 70s and 80s and um yeah i'm kind of struggling to formulate my thoughts on that but it is it it is kind of interesting that he, he repeatedly depicts them as having some type of mind of their own um yeah I also think it's interesting that the synthesizer is electronic and that it it keeps messing up. Um, I don't know anything about synthesizers or the um, how they're constructed or anything, but that that type of thing, um, you know, just from a very novice ama- amateur, uh, not even amateur, but non musician standpoint, it it seems like the type of thing that would you would attribute more to a um, piano rather than a synthesizer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about digital audio um, and signal nonsense. I mean, that that stuff is basically witchcraft. But I know <laughs> enough about programming and about how you make computers and how you make like speakers and things and the way that synthesizers work on a on a theoretical level to know that yeah, no, that doesn't happen. It cannot happen. Like it, 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 it it's you know the only way it could happen is if. The, like the circuit boards had crisscrossing wires, essentially. Like there would have to be a random number generator yeah. doing it, essentially. It's it, it as a as a musician, it's it's always user error, but you always blame the instrument. That's just the rule. But at the same time, it's a terrible airline, so it they is. might have found just the worst synthesizer in existence. They probably totally. have bought some busted ass cheap thing that they found at a thrift store somewhere, and just yeah. Cut corners wherever you can. Um, so also continue on the on the music Easter eggs here. Um, I I had to look up because my my brain isn't. I w- I am a self taught musician, so I I never took like music classes or anything. Um, but the E flat seventh, the arpeggiated E flat seventh. Um, I looked it up, and I don't want to turn this into a Beato podcast, but um, it is a very lounge music note. So. Just Google arpeggiated E flat seventh. It's specifically diminished seventh, and I'm not going to get into the music theory part of that. But um, that chord is is just 
it embodies lounge music. If you've if you are familiar, even a passing familiarity with lounge music, you will recognize that chord almost instantaneously. And that's I think specifically why he chose to use that note. Yeah, in that same section, I really love the like the let me roll that little grass skirt and the zigzag of my embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, whenever I used to smoke weed, I I pretty much exclusively would smoke uh, spliffs, which is a mixture of tobacco and weed. Um, but I'd always get comments from friends on how um, you know I was I was pretty good at rolling, and um, I love that whole song. Basically, at least the lyrics. It's a to great it. one. Um, yeah. Yeah, then the the uh the equation of of smoking weed and uh romance does seem to come up in uh inherent vice as well where I think he writes like love notes on the joints and then smokes them mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um I really love that song though. Uh and the uh to go back to the the audiobook thing, the guy on the audiobook uh who does the audiobook sings all the songs in this book. Oh, does he? Is there like accompanying um, yeah. music behind it, or is it just acapella? It's just him singing. Uh, I don't think there's accompanying music. Uh, no. I don't. He does seem to repeat the like, like the the melody, or like you know, like the way he sings it, he, like the song that he's singing it behind. He does seem to kind of repeat it as if it's the same song over and over, just with different lyrics. Mm. Um, at least okay. some of it. Um, because yeah, it's not always clear like how. I mean, Pitchin does do a pretty good job of like with punctuation and line breaks of, of letting you know like the kind of syncopation of the of the singing um but yeah i mean i think we've talked about this cody's talked about it with you know trying to figure out what the backing song would be for a lot of them yeah uh, it's interesting to think about it's definitely i'm glad you mentioned the way he he syncopates it because it's it shows that he he really puts a lot of effort into not just coming up with the lyrics of the song but of writing them in such a way that you should you can you know, kind of catch a melody or or inadvertently stumble into whatever melody he's trying to get you into, even if you don't have a musical background. I think it's written, like you said, in such a way that you can, you can land in there and get that feel for it. Well, the, yeah, definitely. The zigzag grass skirt song might be one one thing, but the 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 funky coconut song I can literally <laughs> yes. only read it in the tune of. The Hey Mr. President song from Inside Lewin Davis. If anybody has has watched that movie, that is what's going through my head every time I read those lyrics. We need to revisit that movie. I have seen it, but it's I think I saw it in theaters and never revisited it. So it's been like 10 years or something. It it might be my favorite movie of theirs. So really? Yeah, it's really I haven't seen good. that one. I need yeah. to. Uh, you would love it, Cody. I mean, it's 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 a folk music yeah love like, i remember when it came out it totally looked up my alley i just never got around to it yeah um, that, the lyrics to that song do remind me of the of the i've got a lovely bunch of coconuts yep um, yep yeah yeah which i do think it's kind of riffing on maybe a little bit i did look up the song for that um and i the the beat and the melody and everything don't seem to match up with the lyrics in in the book in Vineland and the wacky coconut song but they do kind of have a similar um, like children's song, but it also kind of has some innuendo to it as well, kind of mm-hmm. feel. Yeah, I'm I, I'm trying to sing it to that tune, and I'm just I'm reverting to like a weird hymn. So I don't know what it's supposed <laughs> to be. Talking at him. 
Um, well, so and that that's another uh, little uh, right after that is another little uh, Easter egg that I found with the the reoccurrence of the B flat, and I mentioned this in I want to say it was in lot forty nine that I that B flat seems to be a recurring uh, key or note in this case uh, throughout most of his books, if not all of them. Um, and I think we riffed on kind of why he chose that particular one. And, and it, it's made clear in here that it's, it is being used as a sort of weapon uh, against the, uh, the people who have made their way onto the plane. Um, and I just love that he Zoid works that in as often as he can. Not that he makes it to a point to just constantly hammer that, but he's, he's, as, you know, as, as he's playing the song, he's making sure to work it in there. Uh, ever the consummate musician, musician there. Um, and then the last musical little Easter egg I wanted to bring up, and this is just, this goes back to, again, me having been in a band and, and not only being in a band, but this specifically cued the time where I was in between bands and so desperate to play drums that I ended up joining a church band, um, at the church where I was also working at the daycare as a side job, um, so in in chapter six on page uh, seventy nine, when when Sasha's playing with uh, Eddie and Rico, it mentions that he's telegraphing chord changes to her. And for anyone who's been in, not necessarily, I mean, it, it kind of depends. I think on the on the type of music you're playing, if there are um, a lot of changes that need to be done like that. But playing with a a group, I know when I tried out for the the main band I was in, there was a lot of telegraphing like when certain uh, tempo changes came through or, or different parts of the song came through. So that kind of like musician to musician eye contact and, and unvocalized um, uh, communication um, just kind of like sparked my, my memory uh, and reminded me of that really weird time when I played in a church band. That's one thing that as a non-musician, I've always really, really liked about live music is, um, watching bands kind of jam out and play different songs or like, um, you know, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard will like do like um, snippets of other songs inside of their jams and stuff. And a lot of times it seems unplanned. Um, but I, I really love that whole, th yeah, that the, the watching musicians interact with each other and communicate with each other non-verbally on stage is, is one of the funnest things about live music to me. Well, and since we're at the end of chapter five, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, the boarding of of that flight. Um, what did y'all? What was y'all's uh, opinions on how that was done? I really liked it. Um, I do think it's interesting. I'm I'm looking it up right now because it it is stated that the uh, the UFO is. Um, is not alien like that it's it's earthly in some way let me um there's some line in there where that that seems that seems to say that the the um the ufo is as as earthly origins which i find very interesting um let's put yeah, my Gretchen tinfoil hat on not what we'd call a ufo is, is yeah. the way she puts it just to kind of put my tinfoil hat on you know in the last few years especially especially in the last year uh, UFOs have been in the news a lot. Um, they've been a topic of conversation, even with people as straight and normal as my family. Um, 
And I'm of the opinion that a, a lot of you, like, I don't really think that aliens are flying around in the sky. I think that if there are real UFOs, which I'm not convinced there are, because I've never seen one myself, um, that a lot of them are kind of like, you know, corporate or, or government experience, experiments in, um, in different types of aircraft and stuff. Um, so I do wonder if that's supposed to be some type of like, government agency that is is taking people off the ship to experiment with them uh if it's supposed to be some type of like criminal organization that is kidnapping people um it's unclear why they're interested in takeshi in particular as well i don't think we ever get an explanation of that um i mean takeshi is stated to be some type of karmic adjuster uh, where they could be wanting, like you know, wanting him to do a job for them, but it, you know, why would he avoid them if so? Um, I find it very interesting to kind of sit around and ponder the the kind of mystery of that whole scene. Um, and there's some kind of you know, it's it's pretty funny that they uh, the the cheap vodka is kept in the wing. That's a nice little detail <laughs> at the reserve um, tank. Yeah, which is. I've been on some flights that, you know, everyone is, it did seem like, I think I have been on a flight where they ran out of alcohol before, uh, an international flight. Um, you know, people do love, really love to drink on airplanes. I've, I have friends that have had, had some pretty funny stories about like puking in their own backpacks and stuff. Um, Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, is a little next level. Um, <laughs> I, I actually I have a little tip for any travelers. If you like to drink on flights, and don't want to get cut off. Book a flight on a on an airline operated by a by a, an, a Muslim theocracy. <laughs> they will not cut people off. It's incredible. <laughs> like uh, Qatar Airways. Some I I cannot say any particular ones. Uh, I imagine Qatar's a little better because of just the clientele they cater to. Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you're in uh, economy on some of those airlines, they will just let you keep drinking. Interesting. Life hacks from Will. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think you're onto something, though, Luke. I, I, I think I, I kind of read that in, in that it fits with the, the upcoming theme in the next chapter of um, quote-unquote deleting people. Um, you know, I certainly, I, the UFO thing has definitely always interested me in the, I guess in a kind of conspiratorial sense, but I, it, I've never really been able to uh, subscribe to the idea that actual extraterrestrial visitors have come here. Just given, you know, I've, I spent a good chunk of my college time freelance studying astrophysics, I guess, and understanding how far apart things are in the universe and, uh, that nothing can travel faster than light between them, it really kind of removes the possibility of anything like that happening. So I, I tend to read something like this more as a a sort of covert government intervention of sorts, and, and Takeshi would be of interest to them, although I, I, I'm with you in that I don't think that's ever explored further. Um, maybe that's something that he was going to put in, but just couldn't find a way to do it. I don't know. Um but it definitely seemed like an intentional kind of removal operation of sorts. Yeah, I mean, with the with the Godzilla King of Monsters reference and the later um, possible appearance of a Godzilla-like creature, I could see there being something there with that, but I don't think it's ever made explicit. And, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the Godzilla reference just could be a, a bit of foreshadowing mm-hmm. uh, to later events. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll think about that some more, but um, in between episodes. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is, and I, I love, um, I love the fact that Cassie's a character in Gravity's Rainbow, although I, I believe he's a kamikaze pilot in Gravity's yeah, Rainbow. Yeah. And I can't imagine One, that two. there's a whole, there's a whole lot of surviving kamikaze pilots uh, due to the nature of the job. I do think it's interesting that he um, is stated to be one and then survives World War II. Um, he may just not be I, good at his job. That's true, yeah. That, that is fairly well implied by Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, okay, that, that yeah. he is bad at his job. <laughs> that, uh, that make, yeah, that, that's a funny mental image of a kamikaze plane like missing the, the boat. <laughs> and stuff. Um, Whoops. Oh yeah. no, I didn't crash. I also, I really, this is the first time we get Pynchon's, um the way that he uses uh, punctuation to let you know that the character is Japanese, um, which is, I don't, in, in the modern time, like in 2023, it does scan as a bit uh, much, I guess. Uh, like if somebody were to do that these days, I don't think it would go over very well. That being yeah. said, I mean, I have seen references to it being a reference to like, you know, Japanese movies and how that they were punctuated in the subtitles um which makes sense to me and it does you know like this this book and gravity's rainbow and are very obsessed with film um so that would make sense i also love that Takeshi starts off with what it is yeah what it is bro, bro. Yeah. yeah which is like it's a it's a very like i don't know if that's 80s slang i i have heard people in, in maybe in the 2010s ask what it is and stuff uh, i think it's more of a 70s thing yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess this would be in the seventies as well. This this scene, um, yeah, that's a. I don't. It's also really enjoyable that you know, like it's hard to tell because it's stated that he's blonde, and then it's stated that that's a wig. But you know, Pynchon never never states that Takeshi is is Japanese in this section. We get his name, obviously, um, but the only real like actual solid clue is the. You know, like B movie dialogue thing. Um, yeah, I that's I love this part. So, it, so I I found it interesting that you both took the uh, not exactly a UFO line to to mean uh, that it didn't. Well, to, that that you read it as non extraterrestrial. To me, I I read that as much more rooted in the the sense of. We have the idea of a UFO. This is not the UFO. This is a slightly different thing. That's how I read that. And I'm, you know, as always, I'm not saying that you guys are wrong. I just didn't read it that way. And uh, it's interesting because it does not sound like people to me. It doesn't like a, a robin's egg made of aluminum. It doesn't sound like a human thing, but it absolutely could be uh what i really what i really read it as is more that absolutely the world governments plural apostrophe are uh, are engaged in some kind of agreement with these with these aliens uh but more more in a 
procedural sense, less less of a controlling one. And I also I I read, and now now that you mention it, especially thinking of Takeshi and his pal in Gravity's Rainbow, I'm pretty sure that it, it is exactly what what you described it as, Luke. But I read it as him trying to do like a a California stoner impression. Yeah, yeah. But I've actually seen a, a, a sorry a UAP. Um, but literally something that was probably like a falling satellite. Well, and that's the thing is that ninety nine point nine percent of the time that's it ends up being that there is an explanation for it. I I, I think people misconstrue the definition because when you really break it down, unidentified flying object is literally you just, you see something you just don't know what it is at that time. Yeah. Um, but it's always just kind of associated as being something alien because, you know, we don't know what it is and that's where our brains just kind of jump. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, you know, spent most of my life in New Mexico where Roswell happened. It's yeah. Kind of I went to, the, I was going to, I was going to bring I that I went up. to that museum. Yeah. <laughs> that was, a, that was a trip. How was that? I've never been to that museum. You've never, oh man, take it, take the time out. Boy, that is a sweet journey. That's All right. A, we went to Colorado uh, like four years ago, and we our halfway point was Roswell. So while That's we were there, we were like, we kind of just have to go see this thing. And it's the most um, amateur museum I've ever uh-huh. been it's pretty, to. It's pretty shitty, isn't it? I, it's I think really I went when bad. I was a kid. Everything is like all their quote-unquote proof, which they put proof in like bold capital letters, is like hand-drawn shit that like mm-hmm. some dude in the desert saw a long time ago, and that's just his recollection of it. It's um, it's like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember the uh, the Alabama leprechaun thing that went viral a long mm-hmm. while back. I do. If you blew that out and made a museum based around that drawing and the description, that's what their Roswell Museum is, basically. The um, whole town is kind of alien themed. Like the look oh, at Walmart yeah. has like has like aliens strung up outside and stuff. They, they the only make so much money off a of UFO it. on the roof. I went there. Yep. Yep. It's uh, it's it's interesting. There was a guy in there who was yelling, I guess, and presenting something. I think he was like a guest speaker, is what they like were trying to get at. Hmm. But then we saw him later, like cleaning the floor. So I think he worked there too. <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot. It was just, it was a lot. I'm yeah, glad I went, though. The, the, the interesting thing about that whole dynamic uh, is that, you know, New Mexico is, is the place where that kind of stuff has happened for a very long time. The, the whole idea of UFOs being aliens, the whole idea of UFOs being, like, a governmental conspiracy is one that is strangely foreign to the culture here, outside of Roswell, because that is how they... Stay alive as a town. Oh yeah, that's their bread and yeah. butter. They have to. Yeah, the you know here is where um, you know the native peoples had stories of thunderbirds and various other things that fall under the UAP UFO category. So for me, it is it is much less of a like, oh, this thing is is supernatural in a spooky modern way, and much more of a you just kind of assume that there are limits to knowledge here you you assume that yeah people have seen thunderbirds who knows what they saw but they saw something like i know people who've seen things that are not real and they're not crazy they're not you know conspiracy theorists they're not even weird they're just you know 
they're part of a culture that sees those kinds of things more. Yeah. We should get Tom DeLong on the podcast and see what he can tell us. I was going to say. <laughs> He's touring right now, so we'll wait. Well, and then he has um, to go back to his federal job. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anything else that, uh, that we want to talk about in Chapter 5 before we go on to Chapter 6? What do y'all make of Takeshi Fumamoto's uh, actual business card? What, what does it mean to you? Takeshi Fumimoto adjustments, phone book, comma, many, many areas. areas. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's as mysterious as the nature of the card itself that seems to be capable of just kind of making itself present when its presence is needed. Um, so I think maybe, it, I don't know, I guess you could, you could maybe, it's Penchon, so you could apply a certain level of mysticism to it and, and a certain level of, of um, I, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word paranormal, um, but a sort of otherworldly maybe um, presence to it that allows it to where it, you don't need to uh, look it up in the phone book because it'll be there when you need it. Yeah, there is a kind of a sense of anticlimax to it, uh, at least not in this chapter, but in terms of, I want to say it's chapter seven when it comes back up um, where it seems to be, isn't it kind of like a thing where like you call the number or like you take out the card and then like basically like DL appears or Takeshi appears or something um, where yeah, it's something introduced like as just kind of a business card that's very vague. And then later it's like almost like a magical like summoning thing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, adjustments is so vague. It may be, you know, adjustments to reality. Which insurance adjustments <laughs> that's yeah karmic adjustments yeah <laughs> yeah spinal adjustments whatever it's whatever you need at the time i guess i don't know yeah and i mean in that in that context it would make sense that some extraterrestrial species with nice supernatural powers would uh would want to tamp down on takeshi and his uh his adjustments i guess i'm sure it's, it's a mess for them to clean up at times all right so chapter six um as i mentioned earlier um i i think some of the best prose in in the book to this point is in this chapter and i think the the opening paragraph which i, I just want to read real quick because i i absolutely love the the writing here Home between shifts, Fernessi sat with a cup of coffee at a kitchen table in an apartment in the older downtown section of a pale, humid Sunbelt city whose almost familiar name would soon enough be denied to civilian eyes by federal marker pens, sunlight streaming in unmitigated by tree leaves, feeling herself like a tune that always finds its home court again, drawn, taken in, tranquilized by hopeful rearrangements of the past. Many of them, like today's, including her unknown daughter, Prairie, Last seen as a baby smiling half-toothless at her, trusting her to be back that evening as usual, trying to wiggle out of Zoid's arms that last time and into Fernessi's own. For years, whenever she and Flash moved any place new, in a reflex superstition, by now like sprinkling salt and water in every room, her thoughts would go to Prairie and to where, in each new arrangement, she would sleep, sometimes the baby, sometimes the girl she was free to imagine. part is incredibly sad. Um, it really is. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any kids of my own. I do have, you know, nieces. Um, and it just it just kind of breaks my heart. Um, I mean, that being said, it is... I, I want to say it's... And we don't know this yet. This may be a bit of a spoiler, but it's Fernessi's own fault. 
uh, yeah. that yeah. she doesn't yeah, have still. prairie, uh, which maybe plays into like, you know, a, a guilt and, sh- and shame and regret aspect to that paragraph. Um, but you know, she could have, I want to say she could have brought prairie with her in witness protection. I imagine if not for the machinations of, of Brock Vond, um, which we'll get to, I think pretty late in the book. Um, mm-hmm. It is just super sad, though, that she does that. It is. Um, and I think if if I had to try to reason out why she didn't take her, Brock aside, because I do think that is probably the largest part of it, I think she also maybe would have felt that by bringing Prairie with her, it would have denied her any kind of a, a normal life, in so much as Zoid could provide a normal life for her. Um, I think it was better than any other alternative. And she was, you know... Given that she was doing what she was doing, she had to kind of make sure she could give Prairie the best that she had that that she was capable of giving at that time. Yeah, the way it, it this is this is not a, a read that is informed by later chapters. That uh, I, I I in this chapter and the immediately following ones, I I see it a lot as a self-imposed exile of a sort, and. In particular, that she she felt like uh, she felt like in some way to take Prairie away from Zoid and or her mother would be going one step too far. Like like it was more of an obligation, not just to Prairie in terms of having a relatively normal life, but also to the people she was leaving behind. And. Uh, of course, you know, as we all do, un- underestimating how much our own impacts would have on those w- those we create. But it is sad. It it really is horribly depressing because yeah, this this whole chapter is just heaps of regrets and regrets that we don't actually get to quite see Fernesi's opinion about. Just that she has them. Yeah. Well, moving on from that, um, I do. So we talked in chapter one about how uh, mental illness was portrayed in in this book, specifically as it related to um, to Zoid at that time. And I think we maybe briefly touched on it in talking about Hector um, in the previous episode. And then in chapter six here, we get a, we finally kind of get a flash of uh, Brock Vond, who we'll really get more info on later, but. Um, it's, it's mentioned on page, uh, 69 that really no one knows what to do with him and his almost indescribable anger, um, that I think at the, at that time in, in American history, and it really, you could maybe even make the argument that up, up to even now, it's still not really treated the way it should be, um, especially if, for people who are in a in a sort of author, authoritarian position where they have any kind of um you know power over other people that anger is always kind of almost justified you know and i i think it's it's kind of showing that you know Brock is this real like he's described as essentially a loose cannon that no one knows what to do with but no one really seems to understand the implicit danger that's there uh in a person like that not being uh, dealt with or, or, or handled properly? Well, and uh, I think the book will get into this a little bit. Not, not to say that I'm presaging the book. 
but my, my read on that is more of an extension of the, uh, the Isaiah 2-4 shooting gallery kind of thing. The way that it ties into uh, the 1984-type two minutes of hate. I, I view it as this is the way that certain people who would otherwise be fatal to the structure of society and the mechanisms of control in our world, without them... Without that rage that those people have, they would be uncontrollable. And yet they have it. And because of that, they can be manipulated. Well, on that note, that uh, kind of leads into the next little thing I wanted to talk about, which, uh, and I wanted to, I, I kind of wanted to get y'all's opinion on um, the, the book kind of presents uh, not just Zoid, we saw earlier, you know, he, he took, you know, he's willing to take money from. Uh, Hector Zuniga, only he will not spend it on drugs, but he will take it and, and use it for other purposes. Um, but we also see here with, with what's described as Farnese's uh, quote-unquote specialist code, um, this, this use of power by people in power uh, to use and manipulate people that, that they can uh, kind of use to their, their advantage in, in whatever situation they need to. Um, and I'm just wanting to get y'all's opinion on, on how that's presented specifically as we see it with Frenessi now. Um, yeah, it's, it's phrased in the, or I at least link it to look, I'm looking at it right now. I, I linked that whole thing, that whole section to, um, you know, her not being able to trust flash and her and flash being involved in extramarital affairs and stuff. Um, where once you betrayed somebody in a very deep way, like, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. I'm not, I'm not sure I ascribe to that in my personal life. Um, but that's what it kind of makes me think of is, you know, once you kind of betray those around you in such a deep and lasting way, um, you, you know, there's, there's no telling what else you'd be capable of. I could be reading it wrong or linking it to the wrong things, but yeah, that that's how I basically read it as well. Not necessarily as exclusively relating to cheating, um, but I, I do think that that's the intention is to be read as once you've been proven that you will turn your back on your on whatever you say your movement is, then you cannot be trusted in any other movement, whether it's the whether it's the you know function of the state as flash is or interpersonally you know the frenesi met flash in a context where they both knew that uh frenesi had left brock vond and brock vond might have been a terrible person but as far as flash is concerned that's still betrayal right because you are what you say you are and if you act beyond what you say you are then people can't ascertain anything you are from anything you say in the future and it, it, it just it all spirals out from there whether it's political or social or specifically intimate relationships that makes sense i, I think i maybe i crossed a wire somewhere in in my reading of that but i, I see where you're both coming from with that the the section at the beginning of page 72 where um i, I don't want to read the whole thing because it's pretty damn long but 
the section starting what she hadn't been able to imagine in the uh, improvident rush of those early days was that Nixon and his gang would also pass Hoover die, even charades one day be enacted in which citizens could pretend to apply for and if found worthy, read edited versions of their own government dossiers. Um, I just wanted to get y'all's opinion on how that section plays into not just the themes of this book, but in pretty much all of, of his works. I think this is a pretty important section of the, of the book here that we're getting into. Yeah, it comes up in other books. Um, the reactionary nature of the government. Um, I was recently listening to the death is just around the corner episodes about crying about 49 and gravity's rainbow. And he points out that, um, an inherent vice, the depiction of, um, doc and the other people driving around in a, uh, car and the policeman saying that any group of four or more can be classified as a cult in the aftermath of the Manson murders. Um, that that those kind of laws were on the table in California and other places in the aftermath of the Manson murders. Um, and I do think it's interesting that you know, like this would have been. I think that this would have been before. All this, I mean, I, I forget when the interview with the Nixon aide where they talk about the guy admits that, you know, they villainize drugs just so that they could villainize their political opponents. Um, I forget when that interview came out because it's often cited on, on Reddit now. Um, like it seems like daily almost that I see references to it. Um, probably that's maybe an exaggeration. Um, but I do think it's interesting that it does seem to kind of, you know, it it gets into the reactionary nature of, of the U.S. government um, and how I think especially in the Reagan era. Um, yeah, it, this book does talk about Reagan era budget cuts. I think that's the the impetus for the. Uh, the uh, informant um, witness protection thing being. Um, Ended. Uh, that being said, I mean, Reagan in the Reagan era, you know, one of the reasons that we won the Cold War is because uh, we basically I think I've seen this. I, I'm not a, I'm not I was a history minor in college, but most of the history classes I took were, were pre 20th century history classes. But I'm under the impression that Reagan kind of gave the green light to the military to spend ridiculous amounts of money in an effort to both outspend and bankrupt the USSR as they try to keep up. Um, and you know, that, that type of, uh, spending, uh, seems to, I don't, I'm not an expert on the Nixon era in terms of the government and what we were spending money on. Uh, but this book, and I, I, I do trust pension enough to stick to reality that um, I'm sure that there was, you know, like it does seem to be probably based in fact that Nixon was was pouring money into the war on drugs and the war on hippies and the counterculture. Um, I find it very interesting that Flash is so uh, interested in the Watergate um, debacle in terms of it being related to his own personal life. Um, and how it will affect them. Um, you know, I, I can't really think of modern modern uh, equivalents to that. I think that's kind of part of it. I, I think with Watergate, the, um, the government's ability to kind of do these um, you know, backdoor subterfuge kind of 
operations kind of fell apart at that point. And in a, in a really kind of hilarious way, like they got undone in the dumbest possible way. Um, and I think after that, not to say that they stopped doing that kind of, you know, backdoor stuff. I think they just got better about hiding it. Um, but that was a big um, kind of moment in, in that time. And that, yeah, I, I'm with you in that uh, um, his, his reaction to it is definitely interesting and in, in how it relates to him specifically or him and Frenessi really. Um, but I, I, that was where my mind went immediately was that, you know, that, that signaled kind of the end of a lot of what was going on behind the scenes or, or at least a, a, a sort of restructuring of how they did those things to kind of keep it under, under wraps and, and from getting out the way that it did at that time. Um, Will, what about, what about you? How did you feel about that? Yeah, I, I read it as uh, in line with the kind of continuum between the bank, the computers and the government that I, I, I you know, specified. I, I see, I see this as, a on a on a character development level, and that this this is the primary level I think when reading this paragraph. It is about Fernezzi realizing that she had been naive in her own way. Sure, she'd been raised by a wobbly family. Sure, she had this you know strong renegade streak to the extent that you know when she was a teenager she was basically a you know a young Republican, to use the phrase of the day. Um, but you know, she came back to the 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 left side as uh, as she got older, and uh, she didn't seem to hit. In this section, it seems like she's realizing that she didn't understand that it was not Nixon and his gang. It it was not Hoover. It was this system continuing to to work and that she'd spent, you know, her years saying, yeah, down with the fascist Nixon and that she'd missed the point that it doesn't matter who it is, that it's not Nixon doing this bad thing. It's not these bad people that it is this structure. Right. He's the visible element of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on a more, on a, on a larger level, Exactly the gap between, um, you know, Nixon's maneuverings that led to Watergate, leaving the, what was it, like, leaving a voicemail around? I don't, I don't, you know, I'm too young, you know, to me, Watergate is just where we get the <laughs> suffix. But um, it, it is also, it, it, it is this gap between the intentions of the individual politicians and the structure of politics. They couldn't decide who was going to be the next winner of the Republican primary, so they, they, they twisted it in their own way. And nowadays, just like Frenesi can't run around and go to, like, off... off uh, rain? Off, uh, off-base check-cashing places to get in under the wire before the the cancellation signal is sent to the other banks. That doesn't exist anymore. There is no analog digital gap. There is no outside of the the loop. The loop is everything now, or at least everything is curtailed by the loop, which is, Mm. you know, in in a metaphorical sense, these computers and the state. 
One thing I find interesting about the whole her issue with casting the check and um, the the fact that they're basically taking off government benefits is, um, you know, as I was talking, yeah, the military carte blanche to spend money, uh, but a part of Reaganomics, I believe, was the cutting of like stuff like welfare, yep, and stuff like that, where. Um, you know, it is interesting to me that the government um, caused these people, you know, the, I think Flash especially is is shown to have been kind of coerced into turning into witness protection. Um, you could say that Frenessi, you could, uh, I mean, you, in my opinion, you'd be too charitable to Frenessi, but you could say that Frenessi was also kind of coerced. Um you know, the government kind of created these problems for these people where they turn them and then they don't take care of them where I think people get, I think you get where I'm, where I'm going with that, where yeah, you know, yeah, the government yeah. kind of doesn't take care of people and creates problems for people and then doesn't fix them. Um, which uh, definitely does seem to be a, a big thing in the eighties. Um, especially under Reagan, um, where, like I said, you know, like Reagan was cutting while, while he was allowing, Certain parts of the government, you know, unlimited spending. He was also cutting other parts of the government that are arguably more important to the everyday citizen. So, yeah, right. In, in a lot of ways, I, I see this kind of series of scenes as like a an inversion of Reagan's speech about welfare queens, right? This idea of people that by taking away the welfare, we will teach these people to stand on their own. This is Pynchon basically pointing out, hey, stand on their own? What the hell do you mean? You have created this structure in which these people are forced to fight to survive. And in this exact case, it is a it is a deeply, deeply satirical version of that where the government has literally required these people to, like, like conditioned them to turn on their friends so that they're completely isolated. Mm -hmm. And then they are literally kicked out on the street from the home that they are legally required to inhabit essentially and it's not you know it's not quite that strict but if you look at it the way that hector did which i think is a useful frame it is it is like this kafka-esque version of what what reagan was talking about well and let's let's jump from there to the the revelation here that um Fernessi has a major connection to Against the Day now with her family lineage, um, which is, yeah, I feel bad because we talked about the connections between uh, Mason and Dixon and Against the Day so much. Um, and now we have this, this major connection between uh, Vineland and Against the Day. Um, but in a, in a much more explicit way than I think really any of the connections in, in Mason and Dixon, because here we have a character who appears in a, pretty large role in against the day um being directly tied to Fernessi through her mom and I, both of y'all have read against the day right i think yes. kate's the only one that hasn't yeah i have read it um okay and yeah all the parts about the traverses uh especially their whole um vendetta against the vibes is pretty much the heart of that book for me um yeah yeah I love all the parts, especially in the beginning of, you know, all the stuff, stuff about unions and is it the Kiesel girl kid? Yeah. Kiesel the Kiesel girl. girl kid. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, 
plays into the 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 themes of you know of what against the day is getting at um a lot of with the the corporations versus unions and how all of the the union busting activity that was taking place at the turn of the century um impacted the the workers and and the businesses um that were responsible for hiring the union busters uh so i think this is a really interesting uh, way of, of bringing those in. Did y'all feel like this was a kind of a, a natural, so to speak connection or, or it did, did it feel forced or anything? Like, how do y'all come away with that, that knowing that these two are, are interconnected in the way they are? It actually, to me felt surprisingly natural. Um, I was kind of, I don't know if it's, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't born until 1989, the end of 1989. Um, and it, you know, it's part of growing older and stuff where you like the, it, it does surprise me some that I believe I just reverse, I forget who he is in against today, like which one of them he is, but it, it, the timeline of it, I, I, I struggle with like him being alive still, I guess, um, in these times, but that being said, it might just be a symptom of the fact that against the day only goes up until the early 1920s, I believe, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, where um, it just surprised me that one of them w- would be alive to be the uh, grandfather of Frenesi. Although whenever I think about it uh, in any type of uh, in-depth way, it does. I think the timelines do match up fine. Yeah. Um, uh- yeah, side, sidebar, I guess. is It just is... Is he Reef's son with Estrella? Ye- mm, yes. He's... A lot of his his appearance in the book is at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, there's a... His... His... Um, daughter... No. I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember the end. I don't want to. Uh, I shouldn't say anything because I don't want to get into the the ending of Against the Day. Suffice to say that our, that might be one of my favorite scenes in in that whole book is the ending with Jess. So, and, but he uh, he would have been born during the Mexican Civil War, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah it, timeline it adds up. up. It does. Yeah. It does match. Yeah. Whenever I think track. about it a lot, it does match up. But just off the top of my head, it, it surprised me that you know what I'm saying. But yeah, it, it is it. unexpected, I, I think. But then I, th- I think when when I because I read Vineland after I read Against the Day the first time. Um, and so it, it, it did feel natural in the sense that I think that the the two books are in conversation with a lot of the same thematic elements just taking place at different times, which, again, goes back to the whole that kind of cyclical nature of, of a lot of um, history. So. I, I've always enjoyed the connection between the two, and I don't think it's it's so uh, it, it's not overdone. I don't think or anything like that. I, but I think these these books are kind of in a way in conversation with themselves. Yeah, it's almost like they were all written at the same around time. the same time. I know, right? It's weird. Um, on the subject of Jess Traverse, I do really like the absurd assassination attempt. Uh, where I've never heard of somebody trying to kill somebody else, although I'm sure it's happened in real life by uh, having a tree fall on them. It's like an old Looney Tunes thing. It really it is, is, yeah. Because it's like you think the tree would be falling kind of slowly or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was so unexpected that 
it, it, it makes sense that it would um, injure him at least. Um, but uh, it's, well, I find that just to be so absurd. When you think about some of the ways that the FBI or the CIA tried to eliminate Castro, like they got into yeah. the pretty Looney Tunes shit true. themselves. So. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And also, it sucks that it's a redwood because those are so big. Like that would, yeah. That would, yeah. That'd really fuck you up. Yeah. And I, I mean, that, that's probably part of the joke, right? That this it's this giant, majestic tree that's probably close to a thousand years old or something. Yeah. And it's just getting cut over to try to kill Jess for essentially no justifiable reason. Um, so I do, I, I really enjoy, there's a line um, in, in this section on page 77, uh, the war changed everything. The deal was no strikes for the duration. A lot of us thought that it was some last desperate capitalist maneuver, a way to get the nation mobilized under a leader, no different than Hitler or Stalin. But at the time, so many of us really loved FDR. I got so distracted I quit working for a while even though I was even though there were these incredible jobs everywhere just cuz I had to try to think it through. You can imagine how much help I got. I think that's a really uh important paragraph uh, as far as what is is kind of being implied here with the themes of this book and and with a lot of his stuff really that you know that especially World War II is has this kind of unique place in in American history where it did occur at that almost right moment to um, make a lot of social activism get put on the back burner. Um, I don't know if y'all if y'all came away with the same impression there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go from pre thirty eight. You had you know the the civilian conservation corps. You had all the New Deal programs running, and you had some of the lowest true unemployment. Sorry, what's the what's the term? Absolute unemployment. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, some of the lowest in human history in that period. You you had all of these unions coming together, and you had these, um, these grass like truly grassroots campaigns starting up, which ended up turning into the the counterculture movement, which we all know and to despise. <laughs> uh, but it, it, yeah, it, I think that that's exactly what it's getting at. Because yeah, the 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 idea of FDR being this sort of Trojan horse, even if he wasn't per se, you know, you go into the war trusting FDR, come out of it with Truman. I mean, mm -hmm. how how more betrayed can you feel if you're one of these people? I do really. This is a bit off topic, but I do really love that we get um, a good amount of description of the home front in World War II, which I can't think of any other book or piece of art at least american uh, or american focus that really gets into it at all um yeah you know, i've seen i've read stuff about the home front in england which was technically probably part of the world war ii war zone uh volman's europe central gets into russia uh, during during world war ii but not necessarily the the war aspects um but I, I find that a very, you know, as much as as much as Rosie the Riveter and stuff like that is is ubiquitous even today, um, you know the the I can't think of any depictions of of men who stayed home during World War II. I can't think of very many, at least, depictions of uh, women working in factories during World War II. Um, I do think it's kind of it's not necessarily stated. I don't think in this section. 
you know, this was a big, a big, uh, you know, you, you could kind of link the um, women taking over like manager jobs in factories and, and kind of getting more leadership roles. You can kind of link that with the later kind of explosion of the feminist movement. Um, mm -hmm. I think, and I, I do think I've seen people talk about that. Um, historians and philosophers make that link. Um, but I really, I really, I really love this section. Um, it, it does, you know, I think I've, I've read that, um, Pynchon scholars who are professors uh, have talked about how this is Pynchon's basically only book that women, that female students uh, can read and not come away like super, like not come away like disgusted by Pynchon. Like this is kind of his his, his most feminist novel, um, which I do think is, is this section is probably a part of why women enjoy this novel more than other Pynchon novels, perhaps. Yeah, I think there's a this this is continuing to stray off topic, but there there is an interesting phenomenon where this book is a you know, it is it is paired with Gravity's Rainbow only in the negative instead of framing it as uh, one of these books is is about war, which is a manly thing done by men for men's reasons. And the other one is a story about these these three women essentially four women once dl shows up um who, who've created the world around them you know mm -hmm. the, the, there there's this interesting dichotomy inherent to that that i think is often overlooked in casual conversation but i do really i just do love this section if only because i think sasha is one of the most badass characters. In, oh, absolutely! In she's super, books. super likable. Yeah. She's awesome in in every way. Every scene, she's saying the 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 badass but like morally upright thing. In every like flashback, she's conflicted in in a human way and very believable and very root forable character. Yeah, I I absolutely love Sasha. Um, and yeah, she's absolutely a badass. Um, and it, it, the, I think the book does a good job of covering, um, in, in showing her history, it, it, it does a good job of examining how the, um, you know, going from the, the, the unions and the union, excuse me, and the union workers, uh, at the turn of the century, um, and then, and, and how they were sort of vilified throughout that stretch of time, especially after, um, you know, post-World War II. Um, and then how that fed into things like the Hollywood blacklist, um, which on page 81, uh, I, re I really enjoyed this part where, uh, to Sasha, the blacklist period with its complex court dances of fuckers and fuckies thick with betrayal, destructiveness, cowardice, and lying seemed only a continuation of the picture business as it had always been carried on only now in political form. And just, I, I think in, in these few pages and in this, this kind of backstory, with with Sasha, I think Pinchon just does such a great job of of examining the evolution of of all of that kind of darker side of of American history and how these workers were put into these situations and and then vilified for you know no provable offenses ultimately, um, but just as a means of controlling whatever situation they happen to be in. Hey, now they were getting rid of un-American activities. I forgot about the house. I'm sorry. It's very important to get rid of those un-American <laughs> activities. 
that era of America is is very interesting to me. Like the 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 McCarthy era, McCarthyism um, and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't I don't necessarily have anything to add to that. It's just I I find it very interesting that the whole like backstabbing yeah. and um you know you writing your name on a list of attendees at a communist you know party like ten years ago could get you fired in the present day and stuff. Yeah, it was really fascinating to see how people could be like not just turn on each other but be kind of coerced into turning on the people that they care about um it's 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 fascinating but it's really really dark um it, it's a really unfortunate period of, of american history and there are many of those um but yeah that's one that i've i've kind of always really been fascinated by as well yeah there, there's a reason that perennial favorite dividing line in not just American, but our world history is World War II. Because prior to that point, you know, the government was, governments, to be clear, were using, uh, you know, the mechanisms of control, however you want to talk about them. And, you know, there were winners and losers. But after World War II is when, you know, America, the land of the free, started mm-hmm. using those mechanisms on the white people too. And that that is a change. That it is a it is a clear dividing line. And there's a reason that it's it's in the center of all of Kitchen's works. Yeah. Well, moving on from that, I do want to briefly go come back to uh, something we've talked about throughout these uh, these previous chapters: the the power that television has, and specifically. Um, on page 83, the, the line, believing that the rays coming out of the TV screen would act as a broom to sweep the room clear of all spirits, Fernessi now popped the tube on and checked the listings. Um, and that's going to get into another little thing that I want to uh, go over with y'all. But I, I think, again, we're seeing this, this idea of um, TV having a sort of almost mythical capability of... of uh, whether it be people thinking that it can be cleansing or that it can, you know, wipe away whatever problems they're they're feeling, um, it it shows. I think the the real power that that this at this time kind of newish technology um, was really starting to uh, to have a grip on uh, America as a society. Yeah, that that particular section, for some reason, I'm not entirely sure why, really reminded me of the phenomenon of those. Uh those boxes that started being sold in the late nineties that imitated the way that a, a CRT television would project against the opposite wall. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the conceit of it was essentially if you're, if you're younger than me and therefore don't know about these things that if you're at home, you will always have your television on. So mm-hmm. if you're going on vacation, you don't need a house sitter. All you need to do is plug it into a, a normal like timer uh, socket and it'll turn on at 6 p.m and turn off at 10 and nobody just wandering by will assume that you've left your house empty because the television is there essentially mm-hmm. it was a weird home security system that existed at that time yeah and it, it makes sense it's not it does know, yeah there's not just like this symbolic resonance it, it is also a practical matter of yeah if you normally watch tv it makes sense to have something look like you're watching the TV, like everything is normal in the same way that, you know, you might have uh, your house sitter turn on lights at a certain point in time. Yeah. 
but it, it, it is it is also resonant symbolically. So that scene leads into the um the the scene with Fernessi watching uh chips, which for those of you who don't know what chips was, um I don't even How could you? I mean, yeah, like go fi- it's got to be streaming somewhere. It's on Freebie um, or something. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's if you want to watch the the thrilling adventures of the California Highway Patrol <laughs> uh and Eric Estrada in the prime of his career, um go spend some time with uh I think it I it wasn't the first of those kind of cop shows, but it was definitely the the beginning of that wave of of your Hawaii Five O's and and um, uh, not Nash Bridges, what was it? Miami Vice, yeah, um, yeah. and a lot of those those um, those kind of shows. Which um, it, I, I find it interesting that that's what Fernessi watches when um, this scene is happening because there is this sort of at this time in in television um, and in general, I think there was this. And it still exists, really. I think this this sexualization of of authority figures and and people in uniform, um, and if if nothing else is responsible for that, TV has really done a good job of kind of pushing that that concept. Um, which, given the nature of of this book and and the themes of it, you know, can't I can't help but see that as a sort of you know a way of you know if if you get people seeing authority figures in that light you're you're more inclined to let them uh dominate you for lack of a better term i don't know did y'all have the same kind of feeling with that i had a fairly different feeling in that it it really especially given the connections to the traverses and sasha's uh you know internal monologue wondering if she somehow passed along the the fetish for the uniform to Mm -hmm. her daughter it really i mean it it makes me feel like we need to discuss the most problematic element of against the day which we we're not going to obviously that's not what this podcast is about we're talking about vineland but it, it i i feel like i can't talk about it without dragging that all in um so suffice to say no not quite but i get what you're saying what are i you do doing? like that it's kind of a you know like pension does as we've talked about a little bit in this podcast not very much but a little bit you know, pension does consistently depict um you know kink and kinks and fetishes of, of various kinds throughout his books um and this is kind of maybe the most innocent or one of the most innocent or commonplace ones um that he depicts uh you know it's it's not you, you know i i think that um say you were to tell some uh, you know your Mormon friend uh, about having having sexual feelings for people in uniform. They're not going to be super like offended or freaked out if that makes sense. Um, it it does seem to kind of be you know it's it's one of the more mainstream uh, types yeah, of yeah. Deviant sexuality that Pynchon gets into, uh, which I like. I like the fact that it's kind of more low stakes and not as disgusting as some some aspects of Gravity's Rainbow and stuff. Um, it's yeah, it seems to be kind of it's it does. I, I do kind of dislike how much it, it, it you can define Frenessi through the through her fetish for men in uniform, uh, how much of you can kind of boil down her motivations in this book to just, you know, being turned on by by men um, 
wearing uniforms in terms of how much her relationship with Brock Vaughn uh, seems to be a driving force for um, who she is and what she does. Um, mm. That might that's that's an oversimplification of Frenessi as a character, but you can view her through that lens, I think. And I think if you read this book on a on a very surface level, that's what you're going to take away from it. Um, but I, I know I find it kind of a nice, kind of quirky, little funny thing about her um, that does flush her out as a character a little bit more and make her seem a bit more human. Yeah, I, I do like that. The that immediately following that the interaction she has with the two officers that show up plays out exactly like a scene in one of those shows would with the, the, the lead cop, you know, kind of like leaning up on the door frame and talking the, the way they're talking to each other. It just very much plays out like something would on one of those shows. Yeah. I mean the, that scene as well as other scenes in this book do, do seem like almost straight out of a TV show. Yeah. In, in some ways I read that, that particular scene as, less of a manifestation of her, you know, soft spot for men in uniform and almost more of a general, like the, the old school, uh, symbolism implied by cheating and infidelity of just the general, like lack of satisfaction in life. Cause yeah, the, you know, it's talking about her, her thing for men in uniform that's there obviously. But I think that it, it, it also is, you know, indulging our tendency as readers of his books to overanalyze stuff. I think in a lot of ways we are also supposed to see this as a fairly normal occurrence and, and beyond just the, you know, this is normal for her or normal for somebody who has this preference, but just like, Hey, flash seems kind of like an asshole. I don't know about you guys. Flash did not make a great impression on me. I yeah, would no. understand why Frenesi would be looking outside of the marriage, you know, he doesn't seem to care that much about the sanctity of the relationship, so why should she? Yeah, that's a fair point. So that takes us into um, the the realization by Flash and Farnese that they are um, in a in a sort of dangerous situation. We kind of got to uh, talking about earlier with them uh, being essentially deleted from the the system and and this. Um, paranoia that surfaces as a result of it which i think is interesting because in the, it in looking back at the at the 60s you had this kind of paranoia of you know everyone and i think that's the general idea of paranoia is this idea that you're being watched or or that there's an interest in you and what you're doing and all of that but then we got we get this kind of inverse of it of you know now we're in this time of ubiquitous computer use and the ease with which anyone can essentially be removed from the system so rather than you know being having this concern of of always being monitored and watched and seen it's now this become this sort of fear of being removed and, and taken out of the equation and the helplessness that comes along with that yeah and i'm gonna read what you wrote in the notes here because i do think that that it, it links into what i was talking about earlier with the 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 poking fun at Reagan's welfare queen speech better than I phrased it, I think. You, you wrote, the paranoia of surveillance prevalent in the 60s becomes paranoia of deletion in the 80s. And I think that's a very succinct way of putting kind of the, the core theme of this chapter, that things have changed in ways that nobody foresaw, and in particular, that way. I think that the, you, you really hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, and in reading this, 
it there is a a sort of abject horror that comes with like really like when you really kind of sit down to think about the impact of of essentially being deleted like that and it's you know it's still a scary thing in in 2023 but it's it's almost uncomprehendable in it this time in history in the in the mid 80s like the idea that you can just it's not even it's not even being killed. I think it goes beyond that to the, the idea of almost erasing your entire existence is a, a level of horror that I think is almost difficult to wrap your head around. Yeah. It, it's one thing to disappear from the town you grew up in, in a pre-modern era, you know, you, you, you just leave and people talk about you and you know that, and you're fine with, and you, you know that you like, you, you know, some people that you did care about will miss you. And you'll know that the people who you don't care about are talking bad about you behind your back. But whatever, they're they're behind you. Yeah. And then we had this like 50-year period of slowly getting used to the idea of, hey, you're going to exist here whether you like it or not. People are going to keep talking about you. This record will be here. And it slowly morphed into the extent of, hey, this record here is merged with that record over there. You cannot escape that. And so we stopped viewing ourselves as ourselves and more as a network of relations, which in, is, in a sense we always have been. But then to have that flipped so that that network is no longer humanoid, but computer, that network is no longer, well, I, you know, if I'm nice, if I ask the right guy, I can get this check cashed to, huh, well, I'm a zero. And I I do love the fact that um oh, I didn't I didn't write it down but I gotta see if I can find it now this, essentially the, it's the fact that that Justin is the one that kind of keys them into what's going on oh yeah here it is on on page eighty eight Justin pizza slice hovering en route to his face said maybe they got their budget lines axed out Flash gave him a quick head take as if awakened by a practical joke used to be a kid right here what happened what have you been hearing Justin. He shrugged. Keep telling you guys, you should watch McNeil and Lair. There's all this budget stuff going on all the time with President Reagan in Congress. It's on now if you're interested. I, just, I love the fact that a, a, a kid is watch, is aware of McNeil and Lair Hour, um, which is a really dated reference at this point, but uh, would have been a pretty... I mean, it's still, for someone who knows what that was, is pretty hilarious. But um, yeah, it's... Um, I don't know. I just I, I really that whole concept and, and that whole idea of, of removal from the system like that is just absolutely bizarre and, and, and frightening to me. Uh, that moves us into the end of the chapter and um, the uh, Furnessi's uh, attempt to frantic attempt really to, to try and cash this check and, and the way in which the, uh, the area around is, is described. I, I know Luke, you brought it up earlier. Did you want to kind of touch on that with the whole, um, you know, the layout, the urban sprawl essentially here, the, with like the different gates and everything. Yeah. I mean, I think part of my obsession with, with this, with this small section is, um, I've been, uh, on safari in Africa and, uh, at least one of the, um game areas i've been to there are a bunch of different gates and which gate you go in and which gate you come out of can kind of uh define what animals you see and what um 
you know, what roads you're on and different stuff. So maybe that's, I'm now realizing is part of my obsession with this part. Um, but it is, it does seem to kind of you know, like there, the fact that there's seven gates to this military base, and it seems like there's almost an endless amount of gates. It, it says there are at least a hundred of these gates, um, which I can't think of, you know, I, I, so my high school years in Colorado Springs, where there are a lot of military bases, where the Air Force Academy is. Um, for reasons I won't get into, I did have to go to the Air Force Academy a fair amount growing up uh, as a teenager. And, um, you know, there's only, I think there's only like two or three gates into the Air Force Academy, maybe just two. Um, so like there's hundreds of these, you know, it does kind of speak to the military base being like, like perhaps endless or like a uh maybe like area x where it's like this weird like liminal zone Ooh. where like you know like <laughs> like time and space don't really matter and it's just kind of like this endless other region or something um it, it says it doesn't say there's a hundred of them it says there's at least a hundred um and yeah the 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 whole like thing of there being like a city that has kind of grown out of there being a gate right there um is also really interesting to me um i i do i also just really like the the fact that there's two part-time high school girls working there um one of whom is a manager yeah one of them is a manager which you know i've worked i still you know i work at a pizza place right now and there are um you know 18 19 year old people that that work there uh it's mostly adults but there are some younger younger adults that work there um it's yeah i i just really love that whole part and um i have some more to say about the end of the chapter but if you all have anything to say about that the part about the gate you can i didn't have anything to add to it i I thought you summarized it pretty well yeah pretty much you know albuquerque's got kind of a similar setup to colorado springs but with just the one base so i'm I'm familiar with what you're talking about there there is a weird fragmentary quality to all of that but yeah i don't have anything to add yeah so uh the end of the chapter this is something that's actually been on my mind since we went over the crying of lot 49 uh it's something that i meant to bring up for the, I think the final chapter of the Crying of Lot Forty Nine, which I did not bring up during that episode for some reason, I can't remember why. Uh, but the Crying of Lot Forty Nine, the final chapter, it does seem to imply, to me at least, that pension, that the modern concepts that I believe, um, I don't know, I don't know philosophy well enough. Uh, I guess it could be. I'm not sure if it's really philosophy. It could be an aspect of physics. Could be an aspect of mysticism. Um, could be kind of a, a confluence between uh, philosophy, mysticism, and physics, which I know is kind of a popular concept that those three are related. Um, anyways, that uh, the whole idea of reality being some type of computer simulation, um, Pynchon does seem to kind of be getting at that in the last chapter of Crying of Block 49. I have to bring out the book and look over it, and I can't really do that right now. Uh, maybe I'll try to bring it up again or read that section again uh, before we finish Vineland. Uh, but the end of this chapter, you know, God is described as a hacker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the narrator states that we are digits in God's computers, um, which I, I would imagine that the whole reality as a computer simulation had been a thing uh, by 1990. Um, I know it's only kind of recently been 
popularized in popular culture and, and TV shows like Atlanta. Um, there are other our devs. The the TV show devs does get into that some. I mean, it it seems to be kind of a, a bigger and bigger thing as time goes on. Goes on. Um, but I think that the crying of Lot 49 and that being possibly a part of the final chapter, I have to think that's one of the first instances of that idea being put on paper. Um, so it does seem interesting to me that Pynchon is kind of riffing on that idea again. Um, and while I can't think of specific instances in Inherent Vice, you know, the the third part of the California trilogy uh, where he gets into that, I mean, the Cal Inherent Vice does get into the early versions of the internet and different, you know, it does have a a on and on again, off again focus on technology and the the way that computers affect our our everyday lives. Um, but yeah, I mean, I so like I said, I, I do think that Crying Plot Forty Nine is is the first, if not one of the first, um, instances of that being put on paper. Um, and I, I do really love when Pynchon is prescient like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I have to imagine, you know, I was, when this book came out, um, I was, I think when it was being put on shelves, it might've been like the week I was born. Cause I think it was put on shelves at the end of 1989. And I was born at the end of, uh, the end of December, 1989. So I'm obviously not aware of how popular the whole reality is a simulation thing was in 1989, 1990. Uh, but I can't imagine it was nearly as big of a, th like, you know, I can't imagine it's nearly as big of a thing as it is nowadays. Um, so I do really love that Pynchon seems to have kind of um, predicted that, that rise in, uh, in that idea. Um, and I just find, I find that whole concept really interesting to think about. Uh, I, I have to imagine that people that have gotten this far into the podcast are familiar with it. Uh, but the, I think the basic, the basic idea there with the whole reality being a simulation thing is that in the future, uh, or for aliens or something that, you know, um, with the way that computer chips work and the way that, um, the advancements of technology work and the fact that I forget what the name of the rule is, but the whole thing about, um, the uh, the size of a hard drive of a possible hard drive being like doubled every year and a half or two years thing means that in the future or for aliens that they would have like like almost literally infinite computer power infinite yeah. computing power um exponential growth of it yeah yeah because yeah, if you look at the graph I'm, I'm making this thing with my hand where like it just rises and someone <laughs> just starts rising a lot it just gets like infinite basically yeah it doesn't take long um, to get massive yeah um which i think that rule the the doubling of the hard drive size or the amount of like computing power in a in like an inch by inch um computer chip that rule has been around since i want to say at least the 70s if not the 60s Absolutely. so yeah, so that's Moore's Law. And it's actually, very sadly, it has been declared dead. Um, but that is much more of probably... like uh, There was never a, a fundamental physical reason that Moore's Law worked. It was just a trend line on the way that chips were being manufactured. Um, but yeah, no, it, it uh, up until, you know, 
a couple of years ago, it did seem like there was no natural limit to how small and efficient you could make a computer chip. And there may still not be, but yeah. Uh, I, I think the truth is that if you want to be very loose about it, the idea of the universe being a simulation goes back to Descartes and uh, Hegel, probably, mostly. But, yeah, I'm not sure there was anybody before Pynchon who tied those ideas together in any way that wasn't strictly science fiction. Yeah, that's definitely... Yeah. But I, I, I take it... I take that section of Lot 49 as more of a, a kind of a continuing on the psychological reading of that book. I take it as essentially Oedipa having computers as an instance of uh, of that kind of determination being truly visible and traceable and understandable by humanity and viewing it as a metaphor more for uh for, for God than as anything else in Lot 49. But Vineland here was published post-Philip K. Dick's Vallis, which is kind of a book about that. So I, I totally think that it's it's a very it's very much a a subject in Vineland here. The idea that God's computer is our universe, or God is a computer, and that is our universe. However you want to frame it, pantheistic, panentheistic, deistic, it, it all kind of meshes together in a very similar way, post-Dick. Yeah, and Ubik, uh, Phil K. Dick's Ubik also kind of gets into that mm -hmm. as well. Um, the Pension Wiki, I want to say, does kind of trace uh a philip k like the influence of philip k dick throughout this novel i'm blanking on any uh specific uh parts of vineland that they point out but uh it is a thing throughout the pension wiki where they bring it up at least three or four times i want to say yeah that sounds right all right um anything else we wanted to go over on chapter six no. Just I I just do love the the entire discussion of zeros and ones for humanity. Yeah. And the the use of that as a not not simply as a okay, what how much is determined, how much is in control of them, whether them is God or them is the government or them is a shadowy cabal. How whatever they are. Um beyond that I I see that as also a, a more simple postmodern, uh, you know, just pointing to the way that we dehumanize ourselves. And I think that it's in that way uh, very depressing. Yeah. And I think it's very effectively so. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. Did y'all have any particular uh, funny parts that you wanted to point out? I didn't really have anything to add here, honestly. Like, I was, I would just point to the the whole um the the airline in chapter five and zoid's job distracting people and the and and the the air the flight crews attempts at distracting them once they had been boarded i just found all of that pretty amusing yeah i like that part too i mean it is it is absurd in a nice way my favorite or my favorite comedic part is a pretty small one it's on page 75 
what they're talking about. I think the San Francisco Bay and, and during World War II, and it says everybody's smoking, chewing gum, drinking coffee, <laughs> some all at the same time. Yeah, it's <laughs> like good. I've tried to smoke cigarettes and chew gum at the same time, and it is horrible. Like, it's a not a fun experience. It's not. Uh, no. <laughs> and like, no. Drinking coffee on top of that is is just. I can't imagine. Coffee and cigarettes is fine. Coffee and gum is not good. Cigarettes and gum is not good. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't imagine the three altogether would would be any anywhere near enjoyable. No. My first instinct would be to point to something we've already covered, which is the just specifically the description of the synthesizer with its three choruses of eight <laughs> ukuleles. Yeah, and its squirreliness. Yeah, but uh, further on in, in chapter six, uh, referring to Flash's general attitude. Out on the highway especially, he'd been known to go actively chasing down motorcycle police, forcing them over to the shoulder, jumping out to pick fights. <laughs> the unfortunate trooper would cower side-saddle in his bike seat, squirming, thinking, this is crazy, but unable to find the button on his transmitter. Strange. Furthermore, just because they let you ride around on this little... Look at this piece of shit. I think mopeds could shut this sucker down. What is this? <laughs> Who makes it? Fisher-Price? Mattel? Is this Barbie's motorbike or some shit? In some men, such carelessness might indicate a soft streak a yard wide, but not in Flash, a vigilante of civil wrongs, settling things with his lethal and large caliber mouth. I don't think I need to explain the comedy. Yeah, there. no, that's good. That's good. Uh, um, quotes. Uh, Luke, do you want to you get us started? Yeah, my favorite quote uh, from these sections is chapter 6, uh, page 71. Sure, she knew folks who had no problem at all with the past. A lot of it they just didn't remember. Many told her one way and another that it was enough for them to get by in real time without diverting precious energy to what, face it, was 15 or 20 years dead and gone. But for Frenessi, the past was on her case forever, the zombie at her back, the enemy no one wanted to see, a mouth wide and dark as the grave. Um... Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned how I'm bipolar on this podcast, and whenever I'm manic, I tend to spend a lot of time in the past. And um, it's come up in therapy recently for me with, um, you know, whether or not I'm avoidant of the past, whenever I'm in a normal state of mind and stuff like that. And that just, that whole section has kind of spoke to me um, and kind of helped me kind of frame stuff I'm going through in the present, which is always nice when you find a book that can address what you're going through in the, in the present moment. Oh, absolutely. I, th I think being able to find any, um, any media that you can relate to on that kind of a level, um, is, is really important. I think that, and I think that's something, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's something that started to finally kind of get more attention. And I think there's more, art being made with with that in mind or at least we're more open to it now than maybe we were in the past so i, th I think it's it's able to uh, people were able to create more that can reach more uh more people in a significant way which is is really important so uh for me i went with the almost the last paragraph of the of the book this is at the end of chapter six um it was there, gazing down for a long, gazing down a long aisle of frozen food, out past the checkout stands, and into the terminal black glow, 
of the front windows that she found herself entering a moment of undeniable clairvoyance, rare in her life but recognized. She understood that the Reaganomic exploits were swinging everywhere, that she and Flash were no longer exempt, might easily be abandoned already to the upper world, and any unfinished business in it might that might now resume, as if they had been kept safe in some time-free zone all these years, but now, at the unreadable whim of something in power, must re-enter the clockwork of cause and effect. Someplace there would be a real axe, or something just as painful, Jasonic blade to meet final. But at the distance she, Flash, and Justin had now been brought to, it would all be done with keys on alphanumeric keyboards that stood for weightless invisible chains of electronic presence or absence. If patterns of ones and zeros were like patterns of human lives and deaths, if everything about an individual could be represented in a computer record by a long string of ones and zeros, then what kind of creature would be represented by a long string of lives and deaths? It would have to be one up, up one level at least, an angel, a minor god, or something in a UFO. It would take eight human lives and deaths just to form one character in this being's name. Its complete dossier might take up a considerable piece of the history of the world. We are digits in God's computer. She not so much as thought, she not so much thought as hummed to herself in a sort of standard gospel tune. And the only good we're doing for, or and the only thing we're good for to be dead or living is the only thing he sees. What we cry, what we contend for in our world of toil and blood, it all lies beneath the notice of the hacker we call God. I just, I absolutely love that passage i think it's it it is extremely heavy and uh but it really speaks to as we talked about just you know a few minutes ago it really talks to the the major kind of theme or one of the major themes of this book yeah it's really it's a beautiful passage as heavy it is as it is i chose uh about i guess it's about a third of the way into chapter six um Silent in the place, their son Justin asleep in the tube light. Prairie, who hadn't ever been there. The philodendron and the parlor palm, wondering what was going on, and Eugene the cat, who probably knew. Fernezzi took her hand away from flashes, and they all got back to business, the past. A skip tracer with an obsessional gleam in its eye. And still a step or two behind, appeased for only a little while. Sure, she knew folks who had no problem at all with the past. A lot of it they didn't remember, and then it leads into Luke's section. But I, I, I love that the set setting piece there yeah. that first yeah. set of sentences i think are just kind of perfect in terms of establishing what would you say is your most pinch on part of these uh, chapters so i was going to say that you stole mine cody with your quote oh <laughs> so my most pinch on part is on page 60 only thing that holds me back in reference to suicide i think Lloyd blowing his nose at length is the indignity of lying there all splattered by the pool and in my last seconds on earth hearing Jack Lord say, book him, Dano, suicide one. Um, which, I mean, making a joke out of suicide is um, fine with me personally, but it is, you know, like the whole, you know, so it's um, confusion of, of TV with reality is very Pinchonian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I just, uh, Pynchon is the only person that, the only author I know that has the balls to, to make a joke like that, to have a, have a, have somebody, you know, like, I think that's a Y50 reference, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love that, that part. And it, it strikes me as the most mentioned part. What about you, Will? Well, I will, I will suffice with, um, pointing vaguely at 
Zoid's playlist when the aliens show up. I think that... <laughs> between do you believe in magic to Godzilla King of Monsters theme yeah, to the wacky good. coconuts and all. It's, I mean, it's just great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, it's the... It, it comes down to a tie, I think, between um, the the concept of the, the airline that Zoid works for just the the over the top Hawaiian theme and like reconverting a an airplane into what it becomes to where really it would be unflyable, but the the idea of it flying is even funnier. Um, it's either it's either that or the uh, absolute, uh, I guess, generous helping we get of of musical Easter eggs. I think that really um speaks to what he he does as a, as a writer it's someone who really appreciates and understands music I, I always like those to be thrown in like that and there was quite a lot of them in these two chapters yeah usually they're a lot more subtle than he kind of indulged in on these chapters and it's yeah nice. it's nice. yeah uh so we did we got a response from nick who uh in our last episode um gave us a, a really good series of questions that led to a really um, fun and, and, and interesting discussion. Um, did, did one of you want to go ahead and read his, his reply to us? I can read it. Wow, I didn't expect that level of engagement. Thank you. Been listening as I fight through a miserable flu, so not sure if I'm totally lucid in input or output, but fuck it, we've all... I hope you're feeling better, by the way, Nick. Um, yeah, for real. Blue's never fun. Um, and yeah, you're welcome. Uh, we always, as we talk about a lot, we love hearing from listeners. Um, the highlight of one of the highlights of doing this podcast. Um, I also just kind of randomly love that you said, fuck it, we've all. Um, anyway, so that scary movie versus the Beastie Boys angle is really fruitful, but one dimensional as all spectra are. Not a knock on y'all. It does a good job of showing how your tongue placement, whether you're sticking it out all sticking it out at the subject of your parody or leaving the tongue in cheek, signals certain levels of self-awareness to the reader. Where I'd want to add dimensionality to the analysis is in the satirist relationship to their subjects. I see another Goldilocks conundrum to one's observer participant status. Too observer too observational and distant. The satire is hollow, only able to invoke and transform the shallowest stereotypes, stereotypes of your subject. Too participatory and involved, the satire loses track of the ground by which we might distinguish a figure, i.e. lost in the sauce. The best sat satire will expose rot at the heart of a thing without being too complicit in it, or, if that's impossible, recognizing one's complicity. To me, the scary movie spoofs are disingenuous because they're as stupid as the movies they're lampooning. The present present like they've solved the formula, whereas the original Zucker were both more inventive, possibly earning a superiority they'd be quick to reject. The Beastie Boys example is murkier because while they've committed to the bit, I've always seen the Beasties as goofy bros going all the way back to their days as a hardcore band. They might claim to dislike the frat boys, frat bro, yeah, I thought it said frat bros, frat boys they're clowning, but not unlike the spoof movie, they're more similar to their subject than they might admit, which is probably why they feel the need to spoof to create that critical distance. 
this is me talking. I have to say I agree on that. Um, where you know the Beastie Boys do seem to be kind of hard partying people, and it seems to be you know, like the music is kind of pretty music. Anyway, going back to Nick's words, um, this is why I'm much more interested in slash charmed by the performance of the goofy bro enacted in a show like Workaholics. Where there is genuine love for the party personae they caricaturize on the show. Uh, this is me again. I love that you mentioned workaholics in relation to, and I guess this is all tangentially related to the pension, but I just never thought we'd talk about workaholics on this show. <laughs> the good show. It is. It's, it's, it's a fun show. Uh, going back to Nick, this taps into and shows the exchange between another spectrum, sincerity and irony. We engage in performance of self that are simultaneously sincere and ironic. And this is perhaps truer to the way we experience our ridiculous ass selves. Bringing this back to Pynchon, I'd imagine he has mixed feelings about mixed behaviors. He's an obsessive virtuoso who has been willing to lock himself away from humanity in search of a transcendent art. But he's also a regular guy with regular desires, not limited to eating junk food and watching the tube. Whereas a more biting or acerbic satirist will snipe subjects from a distance, Pynchon's zaniness feels like an acknowledgement of proximity and multiplicity, a way to breathe empathy and appreciation into the critique. He's laughing at them, but also laughing with them. Uh, this is me talking. I, I do really like that you point out that Pynchon is a human being and he has his own idiosyncrasies. Um, I think one thing that's lost in pension fandom is that pension is probably just a dude who, um, you know, has some kind of weird interests and stuff. I have heard, uh, some anecdotes from authors who have met pension, had dinner with pension that, you know, he's, he, uh, will talk about things like, um, like the engineering of airplanes and stuff at length, uh, different types of stuff like that. Um, where it's not, you know, it's he's not sitting there being some nomic swami. You know, he's just being a regular dude who has, uh, you know, stuff to say about a, a wide variety of subjects. Back to Nick. Uh, read Dark Knight of the Soul. I guess this goes to questions of tolerance for confrontations with ugliness and evil. If you're trying to get the average person slash reader to engage with something they don't want to, a joke makes sense, but I don't think Pynchon has ever been writing to slash for that crowd. I don't think he's writing just for me either, but I don't need the humor to make this confrontation more palatable and feel like it often risks distraction. I know I argue that comedy and tragedy are linked in interesting, devastating ways in Vineland, but I don't need something so high concept or intricate so long as the humor is creative. I'm right there with you that the description of the Bodhi Dharma pizza temple is so ecstatic and on point and joyful. I'm glad to read it for its own sake. Maybe this is where the line between zany and funny is. Zany usually refers to comedy as a vibe slash affective identity marker without actual laughs. Zany is used to write off the unserious or make begrudging acknowledgement that a genuine genius underlies the play. Okay, that's all for now. Thank you again for engaging. Love a good discourse. I want to expand and refine this thinking. Um, so I don't know if any of us have anything major to say back. Nick, I, I love the email. Um, 
as Cody, I think, mentioned last week, I did really like your essay about Vineland. Um, it struck a nice chord between kind of autobiographical and uh, maybe a more scholarly viewpoint. Um, yeah, as a, you know, we, we appreciate you sending us these emails. Uh, we appreciate how in-depth these emails have been. You make some good arguments. Um, yeah, so um, glad you're listening and enjoying it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I absolutely agree. There was um, some great points made in here and we could go back and forth uh, almost endlessly on, on something like this. But um, I, I do think that um, Nick made some really, really good points. And um, and I, I do really, I just want to kind of reiterate what Luke said, that I do really appreciate your um, reminding us to remember that, that Pinchon is a human like the rest of us are and that, you know, we have to respect that and, and consider that when we talk about him and not necessarily put him up on a pedestal. Um, and, um, I, yeah, I, it, as we mentioned at the beginning of your, uh, response, uh, I hope you're feeling better. Um, uh, I know the flu sucks, <laughs> um, and hopefully it wasn't terrible for you and, and you're feeling better now. And, uh, if not, uh, Get well soon and, and just uh, get lots of rest and hydrate. But thanks for uh, a well thought out and, and really enjoyable response. Yeah, I mean, I, I beg to differ. I think that Pynchon is clearly a talking dog. So we <laughs> differ on that level already. But beyond that, I, I just I, I want to point out that what you're getting at with the uh, Pynchon's zaniness feels like an acknowledgement of proximity and multiplicity, a way to breathe empathy and appreciation into the critique. That is about half of what I was trying to get at with the Dark Knight of the Soul discussion. So I, I think we're more or less on the same page there. Just, but yeah, like Cody said, we could we could talk about this for uh, for days, and I'd it'd probably best not to monopolize the podcast. So thanks again for writing in. We do appreciate it. We're not ignoring your thoughts. We are just trying to not make them the subject of the show because they are good enough that they could take up an hour. Yeah, we really could devote a long time to it. But do keep writing in if you have more, uh, you know, comments and, and questions and whatnot. Really, the the discourse is is appreciated, and I'm I'm happy to continue it. Um, you know, in in different areas of of this book. I did I did have one more thing. Um, what do you all think about the whole D I D T or T apostrophe N thing? The Diditin Diditin. Man, I can't. My brain sees it, and I can't make my mouth make that sound. I know. So it's it's like, um, hey, man, I didn't know you were down there. It's it's a Southern California. Yeah, uh, like didn't you know? I it's New Mexico dialect, which has a whole Wikipedia page. I found out a while back. Oh wow! Um, (laughs) It it is that. That's something that we share. So it's pretty natural to me. But yeah, it's didn't. It's a D I D D E N. Is the way to pronounce it. I got my mind to make the sounds. Like I I went over it in my brain so long that I got my mind to make the sound, but I can't make my mouth make the sound. Yeah, I'm exactly there with you. Yeah, didn't. That being said, I did I did forget to mention uh, the the impression of Betty Davis that was done in chapter six, oh, the yeah. way she talks was so perfect. If anybody who knows Betty Davis and has seen her movies, uh, that was spot on and hard to write. I would think like that's a weird thing to put on the page, but it was well done. 
Um, anyways, that does it for chapters five and six. Um, we will be back next week to talk about chapters seven and eight. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you next week. Bye. See ya.